came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Ksenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Darren. Hi, Jason. Hey. Oh, wow. That, that was an amazing synchronized hey. It was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I am impressed. So, and this is what happens when you've been recording episodes with us for what, how many months? I don't know. This is great. But yeah, so it's been two months now since the start of this season and what a season it has been. So thank you, Darren, so much for all the conversations that you've had and the conversation that, of course, our audience is going to enjoy today it's been fantastic opening i have learned so much from you and your guests thank you so much yeah i'm really grateful to be um in community with y'all and to be kind of working on working on the show and like putting together uh interesting minds and just sort of seeing what happens um and i i do feel like in retrospect uh these past few episodes have been a lot um and have been very heavy with like thankfully very uh fun dynamic light personalities that sort of take us through everything that we need to feel um Mm -hmm. and so for this this episode with benjamin reese rosado i think this is a good kind of time to kind of close out my curated section because it's a little unconventional we talk about serious stuff and then we breathe together for a little while it's very cool. I think it's brought a different dimension to the show. And we really appreciate that you've agreed to to host with us. And yeah, I can't wait to see what, what kind of collabs we do in the future. And looking forward to the show today. Throughout the season, we've been trying to connect with voices outside of disaster studies and emergency management, like carrying out meaningful and needed disaster work. And so I'm really hyped uh, that my guest today is Benjamin Ruiz Rosado, a public health social worker and advocate for immigrants, a youth educator, and a firm believer in intersectional racial justice. Benjamin focuses on trauma-informed and healing-centered care for marginalized survivors of trauma. He's currently working as a senior tra- training manager in the Division of Violence Prevention at the Boston Public Health Commission focusing and training for organizational change projects related to equitable, trauma-informed, and resiliency approaches for programs and organizations. Um, and as a public health worker during the pandemic, I know Benjamin has many keen insights that he might be able to share with us today. So thank you very much and welcome, Benjamin. Thank you, Darian, for having me. What an introduction. <laughs> I'm excited to be here. <laughs> That's all you. You're out here doing the work. And um, for transparency for our listeners, you know, I'm very grateful to know you and that we first met at a bonfire in North Carolina as you first entered social work school and as I first entered planning school. And so 
I was wondering if you can sort of tell us a little bit more about your um, your background and your practice and sort of how you found your way to public health. For sure. Um, man, that kind of takes me back. Let's see. And yes, the bonfire encounter, that was wonderful. Also, can I low-key say that I'm obsessed with the fact that, like, your calming narrator voice is on a podcast. I just have to give that shout out. <laughs> this is like Thank a dream you. for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so public health. I mean, I can't really talk about my journey going into public health without talking about that interest in social work first. And I think it really was rooted in when I graduated college, I moved to the DC, Maryland area. And my main work there for about two, three years was a youth worker. I was a youth case manager. Um, And I was working with a lot of young folks and families who were immigrants from Central America. They recently arrived to the US. Um, And I think for me, what always attracted me to social work was because I, I want to be a therapist one day. I'm still like, that's an inspiring goal. And wanting to support individuals on their own healing journeys. Um, but I think this work with youth and families really opened my eyes to almost the collective health of the community um, and the different kind of systemic reasons why you know, folks don't have access to healthcare. Um, how one's like status is immigration status is affecting um, just like different levels of like health outcomes. And in that role as a youth case manager, there were a couple of public health researchers that had partnered with the the youth center, and were you know wanting us to support in providing different like educational programs around like violence prevention, sexual health, um, literacy. And I think that also kind of sparked my interest in, in thinking about, oh, what are these programs and interventions? An interesting way of thinking about um, prevention, which is kind of the, the root of public health. It's like, how are we um, promoting the health of the community at large and also preventing harm to that community down the, down the road? So... I think I, and then, and then at the same time, I was working with like therapists and like community workers who were like doing the one-on-ones and the home visits and like really building on those relationships. And I, I kind of saw both of the social work on that micro level being so integral to thinking about the, the kind of broader program development and system work that happens in public health. So I think that. I found myself in the world of public health wanting to be equipped with, you know, kind of both of these skills of how can I be in relationship with folks and support their immediate needs um, and the immediate needs of a community. And then also be equipped with thinking about like prevention strategies to, um, you know, protect communities from further harm down the line. Which is, I feel like right now, I'm a training facilitator. Um, I think I literally am so lucky to be at that intersection. Um, I do a lot of trainings around how to support different staff and providers throughout the city to be more trauma-informed, to be more equitable, 
and then doing like organizational change work um, over like longer term times with agencies so that they can start kind of modifying their policies to be more trauma informed. And, and that work, you know, it's not, it requires a lot of sitting there with folks as they're kind of digesting what trauma means. And, and also we, we have like such a explicit, like racial justice lens to all of this as well. Um, and I think I'm sure you can imagine you know, those kind of conversations and those learning spaces are not just an intellectualized experience. There's a lot of the kind of raw emotion that comes out. So I feel like definitely at this interesting intersection of public health and social work. Um, yeah, I know that was a lot. <laughs> but thank you for no. that question. <laughs> that was an excellent answer. And maybe just like as a sort of follow up to that point of um, that you made about uh, tending to people's needs in sort of immediate term and then thinking about these sort of larger structures and these sort of macro forces long term i it, just the question sort of popped up for me is it's like that sounds very similar to the way disaster researchers and emergency managers work in the field like okay i my work speaks to this sort of acutely felt phenomenon um after an event a hazard event um but maybe there's also this tension of like, well, clearly there's underlying sort of conditions that produce people suffering in a disaster. People suffer very differently. And so I just, I, maybe this is like a basic or sort of like super functional question of how do you like, is it 50 50 for you of like attending to sort of these short term people's immediate needs and and then spending time thinking through like long-term organizational change. Like what is that? How, how does your labor, how does your effort sort of get split and how is that prioritized? Do you do the prioritizing? Do people sort of ask or tell you to do, um, to focus on one more than the other? Like, what does that look like where you're working at right now? Yeah. Wow. That's such a great question. Um, wow. Honestly, the first thing that's coming to mind as I hear you ask that is even recognizing that for myself doing this work, I'm like part of a team. And I don't know if that's like a silly response, but I just realized that that is such a critical part of like doing this work and not doing it alone. Because I think as a team and with my other coworkers, I think we all have our own kind of skills and our lens that we can collectively use to assess. Do we need to shift more into like kind of meeting these immediate needs and where people are at right now? Or who are other folks on our team that are, let's actually think a little bit more broadly and let's think about like the systems or, um, and granted all of this is rooted in like always asking like the staff and um, the organizations, what they need. But yeah, I think your question made me realize how much of that kind of decision-making does happen with coworkers. And just, I think that's a, that's like a really, I think essential part of like this work is not trying to like make the decisions like in isolation. Cause I think then that adds like a lot of levels of stress. And then also I know for me, I think, I naturally guide towards 
kind of thinking about the immediate needs and like the immediate harm um, and how are you like providing like that support um, and then sometimes I definitely need to be like pulled back and like okay let's think like broadly like where do we want to go how do we kind of prevent this how do we coach organizations um, moving forward so um, this yeah so this isn't like becoming exacerbated um, but what is also coming to mind is I think during this time especially in the context of this pandemic I think our work naturally is you know we want to build capacity we want to um, support folks in understanding what does it mean to be trauma-informed develop like these different skill sets on how to respond to disclosures or respond to just difficult conversations with with your coworkers or with, or with clients and patients. But just like an individual person that's going through crisis, when an organization is also going through crisis, I think we also have to like meet them where they're at. And I'm thinking of one example where we're working with um, a substance youth um, treatment center that, I mean, has just been on the front lines of this opioid like epidemic and crisis. Um, and when kind of COVID was happening and things were getting shut down and there were like these different regulations happening throughout the city around March and April, um, you know, we had to kind of shift our priorities from training all staff and like working with leadership around um, thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be equitable and trauma-informed when like what they really needed in that moment was like providing kind of a space for their staff to just kind of process like what was happening. Um, and it was interesting because I felt like my role this year has kind of shifted into more of like emotional PPE, um, mm -hmm. like really creating space for frontline workers to kind of talk about how, how this is just like a lot. Um, and, you know, they're going through this interesting, actually, this is a term that comes from like, I was, I was finding in like the disaster literature, it's called um, the shared trauma reality. And I think, mm -hmm. This is a framing that we've been using with um, a lot of folks that we have been supporting. And it refers to, you know, situations in which you have helpers who are also simultaneously exposed to the same communal disaster that the people that they're serving are going through. So and I'm sure you're very aware of this, like after hurricanes or after earthquakes, now this pandemic and um, I think a lot of conversations have been, how are they supporting, um, you know, guests and clients and, and patients, and yet also simultaneously, like, worried about their own safety um, and just trying to kind of, like, process that. So I think, in the yeah, earlier on, I think that has been the bulk of the work. And then while we're letting organizations kind of catch their breath, I think now we're seeing a resurgence of, like, okay, we're we're in like a space to begin more of this like organizational change work.
don't know. I think in disaster research, at least, I think there's more than a few examples of researchers actually being able to sort of like parachute in and like conduct their little research project or survey or set of interviews or whatever, and then just, and then leave um, and not have to stick around for like the years that it takes or sometimes decades that it takes to recover from a particular disaster. And for COVID, um, none of us have a choice. Like we're all in it. None of us have a choice. None of us can leave to another planet presently. And so I, even though different kinds of people have are affected by COVID very differently and have sort of different resources available to them to, to manage, um, to live. And so I want to maybe connect my next question to that um, on the note of identity. So what, what, um, what are the ways that uh, identity has informed your work as a public health social worker during the COVID-19 pandemic? You've brought up citizenship before with regard to like people that you've served and sort of differences in citizenship and the institutions that people are connected to. And so I'm wondering, yeah, how is identity playing out? Um, not just for you, but just for the people you serve right now. And if you can give us any examples from here in Boston. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, ooh, I feel like there's like so many directions this could go in. Um, I, so I think the identity, I, I will, I want to connect to like what you were also saying as well. Like folks are, experiencing the effects and consequences of this pandemic and i'm sure with any disaster in like different ways and that is very much mediated by different identities that they hold or that you know like the system has like deemed that they're gonna hold um it's making me think of something that we say and my coworker elizabeth Nelfew always brings up how you know there's this narrative we hear right now of like we're all in this together and I know that we push back in our trainings and learning spaces to remind folks that, you know, we're all in this together, but we're not all experiencing this in the same way. And I think it's exactly kind of like what you are bringing up. And the reasons are very much, you know, we know that black and brown immigrant native communities are being disproportionately affected by this pandemic. We know that um, the majority of essential workers are Black and Latinx and Brown folks um, who are not able to work from home. Um, and I think that raising, I think bringing that awareness to the conversation is so crucial to understand like what who's going to need like support in the long term. Um, I mean, I even think about identity makes me even think about the ident like professional identities that we're hearing in the media, even um, essential workers and like who's thought of as an essential worker and who isn't. Um, I know one example from my work is, you know, we do work with folks um, operating like domestic violence shelters or folks who are outreach workers working with. Um, individuals who have recently come back from incarceration, 
who might be gang affiliated. And during the whole pandemic, these are folks that have like had to, you know, they weren't prioritized as thinking like of getting PPE, um, not necessarily thought of as the essential workers for the community. And yet they're very much um, doing the like most intense and um, I'd say frontline type of work um, for the community. Um, obviously in like a very different way from like the medical field for sure. But that's been interesting to think about of um, kind of those professional like labels and identities. Um, and then I think something coming up for me too, as you ask about the personal, yeah, for sure. I think I have to, I show up in this work like in my full self as like a queer, brown, Latinx man this is gendered and that influences how I have conversations around wellness, how I'm holding learning spaces around what equity means, um, what it doesn't, what trauma looks like and what it doesn't. Um, I think one of the biggest kind of learning points that I've been having personally and also seeing with different providers is, you know, there's so much conversation right now around wellness and, um, I don't know, there should be more around like staff, just like kind of, kind of taking care of themselves and taking care of one another. And we're coming up against, like, you know, that's not, that's not always like a, a digestible conversation for communities who, have historically endured like violence and trauma and um, may not have like been taught to prioritize um, like self-care, community care, like, or their wellness. And so it's been interesting to kind of have those conversations with staff. Um, and I don't know, kind of just like really, that's what I'm saying. Like, a lot of this is like very, there's a lot of hard work that happens in these spaces. Um, and recognizing that as we're having a lot of these conversations and how people are doing or how we're going to be trauma informed in their work, um, people are also kind of like having to work through their own experiences of trauma or their own lived experiences of, of, of hardship and this pandemic has also brought up a lot of like old wounds for folks as well as we're living through times that are uncertain and not predictable and or unclear like what's the end point. ask a little bit about that um so and you know this is kind of skipping to a, a trauma question um uh but I, I feel like it just neatly fits here so in some of your your, your writing and your speaking you mention different kinds of trauma and then one thing that i know you've brought up in a lot of our conversations as friends um and i know in your work is vicarious trauma and i think that's like a it's an idea that, that should be part of 
our conversation in sort of the disaster world uh, because we see so much and deal with so much. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of like define trauma or define vicarious trauma um, and what you think it might mean for people who are regularly in disaster settings. Mm, yeah. So um, trauma, I think that a lot of times people might think of trauma as, um, you know, being this specific event or talk about it as like a, something that has happened. And so I think one thing I really want to emphasize is trauma is, is a reaction. Trauma is a response. Um, and it's a response and a reaction that's happening when a person feels threatened physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, um, or when they're perceiving and seeing that someone critically important to them is also being threatened, which could be, you know, their community. It could be a sense of collective self. Um, a kind of a, an easy way to kind of think about what trauma is, is you can think about it as the three E's. So you can think about it as there's an event. So there's some event that has happened. And regardless of that event, you know, maybe the event is something that's frightening, it's unpredictable, it's overwhelming. There's a sense of loss of power and control. And then there's the experience of that event. And so this, I think, is where we get into the fact that sometimes trauma is very subjective because not everybody going through that traumatic event is going to come out with the same experience or even have the same experience of it, which is, again, making me think about our conversation around this pandemic. It's like, whose experiences are different right now and inequitable and like um, having more weight to it in terms of, of, of harm. Mm -hmm. And then the 30 is the effect. And so the effect is kind of then where those trauma responses um, show up. So whether that's you know, folks having difficulty sleeping, um, depression, digestive issues, um, body aches. And it's so important to like never assume that just because there was an event that occurred that everybody's going to come out traumatized. Um, I use the example of you can have like two siblings growing up in a household of violence and yet for different reasons, um, one might grow up and have been able to kind of process and deal from that experience and the other person still might be carrying kind of residual like um hardship and, and hurt um and might need like different forms of support so hopefully that's like one way to kind of capture what trauma is for folks that might be unfamiliar with it yeah and then to your other question around vicarious trauma um because there's so many different forms of trauma. And I think I've noticed that most people might be familiar with secondary trauma. Um, and so I think out in the world, secondary trauma and vicarious trauma, um, you know, they're kind of like are used interchangeably. It could be like these identical like twin sisters. I really see them as like fraternal. <laughs> um <laughs> And we can tease out why, 
But what they do have in common, right, is that and this is more of like that indirect exposure to harm. Um, and so this kind of conversation around secondary trauma, which I think is tends to be most familiar out there in the world, you know, this really came out of, I think in the 90s, 80s, folks were recognizing, oh, why is it that the helping profession that's working with a lot of survivors of trauma are also adopting similar symptoms of PTSD. Like, what's going on there? And, you know, now it's been kind of more understood that with the chronic and regular engagement with folks and communities that are going through hardship and, like, showing empathy and leading with empathy, that opens up a helping professional to kind of take on um, some of some of those trauma responses themselves. Um, so that is what secondary trauma is. And we know that that's like so critical to address and have a normalized conversation in these kind of like frontline worker like positions because that does affect staff. That is, affects their sense of safety, the quality of the work, it affects turnover and retention and organization, which is, you know, I think a lot of leadership that's, those are the words that kind of get their ears parked up. Um, but now vicarious trauma, I think it's almost, I describe it as, it's like a, a deeper consequence of secondary trauma. And it's it's now has more to do it's like in addition to like maybe these symptoms of folks that might be experiencing as a result of like listening to very traumatic detailed stories or like seeing graphic news reports um it's also important to note that you also don't have to be a frontline worker to um be experiencing like secondary trauma um I think even in this, like our world right now, where a lot of folks might be just paying attention to the news or we're just exposed to a lot of things that we're listening to that can really land with us um, in hard ways. Um, you know, and I think it, it depends on our own like, kind of trauma histories as well. Um, so I just want to kind of clarify that. Um, but, but when you think yeah. about vicarious trauma, it's definitely, it has more to do with, as they describe it in, in the literature, it's, I see it more as like this profound shift in one's own worldview and how they understand their role as a helping professional. And so it's kind of even deeper than having kind of these symptoms and reactions. It's now almost like affecting our different belief systems and our attitudes. So like one example could be somebody who's a domestic violence shelter worker um, might now start adopting this generalized belief that it's not possible that any relationship can be healthy. Or someone who has like chronically been in situations where they're feeling like they can't support and help um, you know, someone that they're working with um, and 
I use the example of like, so something like that occurs. It's like the difference between like something bad happened to then like, I'm a bad person. Like I am um, a failure in this role. Mm. And so I think that's kind of the crux of vicarious trauma. And yeah, it's like so critical to kind of tease that out. And the different kind of trainings that we do in the learning spaces, I mean, it's hard when folks are kind of saying, you know, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm never doing enough. And like, but I'm feeling as if, um, you know, like this work, I don't know what, what it's leading towards and feeling helpless and feeling hopeless. Um, and it's not to say that any of these feelings and thoughts are bad. And I never want to place a, like a value judgment on any of this because the overall goal is these reactions are attempting to protect us and support us. Um, I think it's when now this becomes the generalized way that we engage with the world, even outside of our professional world. What happens when it starts kind of like seeping into even our personal lives? was excellent i'm over here taking notes thank you very much <laughs> professor um and yeah and some of that resonated with me um just as a as a researcher and as an organizer where you know at the start of like i have experienced you know hurricanes and tropical storms and things like that before earthquakes wildfires but at the start of the pandemic i really um and doing work related to COVID-19 um, very early on, uh, it sort of felt like I never left field work, I guess, or like never left the job site in a way that, um, I mean, and, you know, rightfully so, considerations for COVID-19 do um, or should be governing people's interactions with other people. But it really started to sort of, see, as you described, like seep in, to how I was thinking about how my life is organized and how the world is organized. And um, I appreciate you giving me language for that. Um, and I, I, I want to go back to um, just thinking about this, uh, this huge experience that we're all kind of, or set of experiences that we're all undergoing um, related to the pandemic as, as like practitioners and as communities of practice. So like, what do you, what do you think this pandemic's, and this can be US centric if you would like, this could be global, um, but what do you think COVID-19's impact on the field of social work or the field of public health will be long-term? Um, how, are, how are the ways that we are understanding how people work or how, how organizations work, like changing or being confirmed? Um, what, do you, what do you think is on the horizon for your practice? Yeah, oh man. Also a big question. And okay, I want to try to be concise and thinking about like my own. Like, I think I can speak to the directions I just, I like, I see myself in this work as, as we're moving long term. I mean, I, 
it's it's becoming very clear to me that there will just continue to be an increased need for mental and behavioral health services. Um, which honestly, that traditionally hasn't always like been a part of like public health conversations. You know, thinking about like public mental health, um, and with that, I think there will start to be an increase conversation about like workforce wellness and workforce sustainability. I think that's something that we're seeing a lot more of right now um, as we're engaging with different agencies. And, you know, it came, it, this pandemic has like caused a lot of organizations to recognize that staff are like need, need support in ways that um, are not just like an hour, like, fitness Friday or giving like two personal days or right. Like our book, book a flight and go on a vacation. Like doesn't work right now. Mm. Um, so I think there's going to be, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Cause like, right. Part of my role as a public health practitioner is thinking about violence prevention and that can look like how are we supporting supervisors? How are we supporting managers and organizations that, um, hire a lot of frontline workers to think about vicarious trauma and to think about how they're managing and supervising in a way that's um, trauma-informed and also not racist. And I think that's a big part of, that's a big part of, like, I think we haven't talked about it, but I don't know. That's, in addition to this pandemic, right, we've also seen all the things that have encapsulated it with just the increased visible social media hype around the harm towards black bodies, which that pandemic is not new nor novel. Um, and then around our political system and, and that, you know, that also seeps in into my work. I think folks now, they, they want to talk about like vicarious trauma and also racial equity. And a lot of times it's white folks who are coming with a lot of anxiety around like needing to do this and how do we support staff? And it's a lot of tends to be like white supervisors wanting to support their staff of color. Um, and I think that's, you know, like think about the intersection of that with vicarious trauma. I feel like that's a whole other podcast, but that's kind of part of, of this work too. And I'm, I'm hoping that that, becomes more of a normalized conversation in the social work and public health world, um, but that it's done safely and that it's centering the actual needs of black and brown folks and not the, um, trying to appease or reduce the anxiety of white folks um, that are trying to do this work. So I know that was like a lot. I think another impact on the fields is I think, I think this is going to just require the fields of social work and public health to just be a lot more engaged in advocacy and civil action and and it, it, it is obviously but i think you know we're recognizing how essential it is for you know even just just like even to work through this pandemic it's not just going to be like everybody staying at home and social distancing like that is such an essential part of this whole mission and also it's like how are people going to pay rent and how are people going to um find housing if they've been evicted like that like also needs to be a critical part of 
what we're advocating for in terms of like public health and social work. And so I hope that this kind of pushes the profession to hold systems and governance like more accountable as we're documenting these inequity and inequities. Um, I hope this is kind of radicalizing the field a bit more. Yes. And on this, following this thread of, um, of being more engaged on so many different fronts in so many different ways, I know you've created a really amazing public facing resource um, called Just Checking In. And I, I wanted to know if you could tell us more about that. Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is definitely <laughs> came from my own just like personal, right? This was like my quarantine project. Um, but yeah, I think I originally. I think I just was holding such wealth of like experience and emotions through all these conversations with my job. And I was wanting to create, at first I thought it was like a series of videos to kind of provide some context and maybe some like strategies and tools um, for folks. And I was really thinking about like my family um, to kind of just process like, how, how are we doing um, during this time? I think what that, and I, after I made my first video, I was like, making videos takes so much effort and a lot of work. <laughs> so I definitely switched over to now, um, kind of like my Instagram platform at justcheckingin.qte. Get that estamos. So I try to make it a bilingual platform. Um, and I think that's really rooted in a bigger kind of realization around how how to just contribute to just the conversations and voices around healing for black indigenous and people of color. Um, so I feel like a lot of my like drive and effort is around kind of centering um, black and brown folks on our own healing journeys and trying to just kind of like renormalize that and provide tools um, and strategies to just like support people in that ongoing process. Thank you for doing that work. I know I just, I have personally benefited from the content that you've put out on just checking in. And as difficult as your first video production may have been, uh, like I told you in our sort of pre-show, it is something that I return to. And um, I think it's really helpful, meaningful, useful, all the falls. And so um, (laughs) I... I'm wondering if you felt comfortable and maybe guiding us, the listeners, through um, a short exercise um, or a reflection that you do share on just checking in um, that I really appreciate called mind, heart, body. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, let me, let's see how I can do this for people that are, are listening in. Um, so, I call this the mind-heart-body check-in, and it's definitely rooted from my understanding of the medicine wheel, which comes from Native and Indigenous practices, and and thinking about the different parts that make up our wellness. Um, And so I think during this time, you know, we all experience stress 
so differently and sometimes we're a little bit more attuned to certain ways that our our bodies and our minds and hearts are communicating that it's need of it's in need of comfort and support um, than other parts so i hope that kind of this reflection exercise supports our kind of comprehensive understanding of our wellness and what we might need in certain immediate moments so um yeah, I think I would just encourage folks, you know, if you're sitting down or if you're standing, if you're lying down, just try to be in a relaxed position and just try to find a normal breathing pattern. Something that has been helpful for me is something my coworker Diana Chavez has um, introduced me to is um, thinking about belly breathing. So if you want, you can put one hand over your stomach, your belly, and another hand on top of your chest. And just pay attention to how you're breathing. Notice what hand might be going up more than the other. And if you would be so inclined, I'd encourage you to try to take a deeper breath that makes your belly go up even more. Because sometimes we might just be taking breaths and it just stays in our chest. And so you can continue to just breathe normally at your own pace. And I want you to kind of pay attention to what's going on a little bit in your head in your mind, you know, how, how is your mind doing? How are your thinking patterns right now? If you're feeling pretty calm, your mind is quiet, you know, that's great. If you're noticing that your mind is kind of racing all over the place, you know, that, that's your mind also communicating something to you as well. It might need some support. Or if your mind is feeling super foggy and you're feeling you're disconnected, you know, that's also another way your mind is communicating to you. And then I have folks also want you to just kind of pay attention to, you know, your heart and your emotions. You know, what feelings are coming up for you right now in this moment? And I want to honor that, you know, for a lot of folks, it's kind of hard to articulate feeling words and um, get in touch with those emotions. And I always encourage folks to take that also as information. That's also kind of your heart communicating something to you. We're having a hard time finding those words. And then finally, I want you to think about and pay attention to your body. You know, what sensations are you experiencing and where? So the tightening of your jaw, is there any tension in your shoulders? Does your stomach hurt or is it feeling relaxed and healthy? Are you feeling flexible, mobile? And so... As you kind of are intentionally tuning into these different parts of 
yourself and your wellness. I encourage you to think about, you know, what aspects of your wellness might you have been neglecting um, that you want to seek providing more care towards. And I really want to encourage folks to think about what are care strategies that work for you. Um, and kind of my, my final note on that is I also want you to think about what are care strategies that don't also require you to be disconnected from other people. A lot of times we think about care in terms of self-care, but sometimes it's really important to think about how we can care for ourselves um, as part of the community. So I'm kind of leave it at that. Um, sure, folks are wondering, like, now what do I do if I notice all these things? And, <sighs> you know, it's a lot. But I want to remind folks, there's something I do want to say before we leave. Uh, we have we have a lot of ways that we are already caring for ourselves. And something I do want to like say to you, Darian, too, as someone who's so involved in the disaster world, and I know that you think about your wellness so much, but I do want to just like give you the affirmation that you are such like an incredibly grounded person and you part of the conversations around like trauma too is like we have to talk about and this might be like the buzzword like resiliency um but i i hope that like we talk about it in a way that's not like excusing systems to like support communities that they've made vulnerable and just think that they'll be resilient it's more about you know the narrative isn't that like we're all coming out of this traumatized. Like even part of this conversation is vicarious resilience. You know, a lot of this work can also very much reaffirm people's commitment to like why they're doing this work and how they're finding meaning in um, being hopeful and believing that there there is an endpoint or or that this will create change down the line. Um, and so many providers and so many workers that I've talked to also very much like hold on to that sense of belief of hope um, and are supporting one another and are checking in with one another. And so I know even after that exercise, you might be feeling and recognizing a lot that I just also want to remind folks that there is also so much wisdom and knowledge that we already know. And that comes from like generations from our ancestors that have that, that we can tap into to continue to provide care for ourselves and also care for our community. was so keenly reflective i also really appreciate that affirmation um i don't know if such an exercise has taken place on this podcast before so thank you for thank you for enriching our experience um and is there anything else that you would like to share in this moment about your your experiences your perspectives of 
um, this disaster of other disasters, um, what you think the future holds. Man, uh, I mean, I just really, I think I just really want to affirm all the folks who have been just continuing to find ways to find joy during these times. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think that sometimes is hard for me to kind of reconcile. It's like, what does that even mean in the context of a disaster and like catastrophes? Um, but I just know in terms of like wellness and care, even in the context of like this pandemic. And I, I think I want to be very explicit too. I'm really thinking about like folks of color and black and brown folks. And (laughs) when I say all of this, (laughs) um, because part of our own sustainability and healing is still our commitment to like live joy filled lives, even while we're critically conscious about these like inequities and forms of racial trauma and oppression. And yeah, I think I just want to encourage like folks, if you've been finding it kind of difficult to like get to places where you're able to kind of channel some of that joy, um, you know, I really just encourage folks to think about like prioritizing time and protected space to tap into that more. And, and tap into your own communities that nourish you as well, because this is such a critical part of sustaining ourselves and sustaining our movements moving forward. And I'm, I'm seeing people do it. Like, I think that's been such a beautiful part, if I can even say that, of these last seven months and years is just recognizing this collective awakening to, like, how are we prioritizing our healing? Um and that of our communities and Darian again I need to give you kudos because I think you've also really helped encourage me understand that you know part of the resiliency and healing journey is also thinking about resistance and thinking about how are we kind of um, collectively like taking action and that is very much part of kind of like creating a culture of care for ourselves Um, how are we holding folks and systems accountable for harm that they're causing. So I think that's kind of the last thought I want to throw out there. And I'm just really honored to be here speaking with you today. So thank you. Gosh, well, thank you so, so, so much for joining us today, Benjamin. And um, where can we find more of your work, social media, website, something I can link in the show notes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, well, definitely check me out on my Instagram page at justcheckingin.qte, um, where I try to, yeah, just provide kind of like healing and care resources that um, are explicit but not exclusive for um, Black and Brown folks. And, and I've been trying to provide more content in Spanish. But also, I do have that video. Um, on a YouTube channel, just checking in, get that estamos. Maybe I'll make more videos online. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> uh, um, and then, yeah, I think, you know, I've also been doing my own solo 
trainings and providing um, support around folks wanting to understand trauma-informed approaches more, um, vicarious trauma, racial trauma. So, I mean, you can reach out on LinkedIn um, if you're ever interested in having those conversations. So, yeah, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much. Thank you, friends. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Disasters Decon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Darian and myself, Benjamin Rizposado, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcasts.